Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Well, talking about great guests, Lloyd, we have a really great guest today, and his name is Dr. Michael Turner, and he serves as president and senior scholar of PERC, which stands for the Political and Economic Research Council. He's an expert on credit access, credit reporting, credit scoring, information policy, and economic development. He's testified before Congress and numerous state legislatures, and he's presented studies to a host of governmental agencies, including ones like the FTC, which is the Federal Trade Commission, the FCC, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, the Council of Economic Advisors, and the White House. Dr. Turner was appointed to the first Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee of the Department of Homeland Security by former Secretary Tom Ridge, and he served on an advisory board at the Brookings Institution. He has advised senior governmental officials in more than 20 countries and was a policy advisor to the Obama Campaign on Urban Policy. He's also the author and or co-author of dozens of books, studies, and articles, and he's widely cited in the mainstream and trade media. Dr. Michael Turner has served as expert witness for both plaintiff and defense cases in several federal cases, including class actions, antitrust, etc., and also including involving information policy, consumer credit, credit reporting, and financial services. He's also a very sought-off professional speaker regarding all of his areas of expertise. There's so much more I could tell you about him, but you can find out more at www.perc.net. We just want to get started. Thank you, Michael, from, for joining us all the way from the East Coast. Hey, Mari, it's my honor and privilege, and thank you for having me on. Okay, so why don't you tell us about PERC and why you started it? Well, I'll tell you. I was working in information policy really just uh, purely by accident. Uh, I had uh, run out of uh, my fellowship at Columbia in, in when I was finishing my Ph.D., and I had to take on a, a day job to pay the bills. <laughs> and I was uh, hired basically by a, a group of information service providers to help them quantify the, the social and economic value of data flows. At the time, this is the late 90s, right. uh, privacy became the, the, the major policy issue again, you know, largely owing to the computer and communications revolution and, and you know, the, the specter of merging online and offline data. And there, there were a lot of, of bills in the states and, and actually federally on, on data privacy, and there was a need for some quantitative research. And that's really how I came into it. I had serious disagreements with the philosophy and leadership of the institution with which I was working and resigned and hung up my own shingle and haven't looked back. 
Wow. So tell us about the, your mission statement and what type of programs that you do at the core of your business. Sure. We have a, a, a very ambitious vision at PERC, and that is effectively to reduce financial exclusion using information solutions by more than any other single institution globally. And we like to do that both directly and measurably. So what are some of the programs that you're doing over there? Well, we have, uh, we have a host of programs we, we currently undertake, but they're basically in a, in a few different silos. Um, one silo we call our Alternative Data Initiative, and you know, we can speak more about that later, but basically it's trying to integrate data that's currently not in consumer credit files. Uh, and here we're talking about largely non-financial data like uh, energy utility, gas, water, electric, or telephone payments, you know, wireline, wireless, cable, broadband, etc., uh, in order to help free people from the credit catch-22. That is, you know, it, it's like when you get your first job. You apply for a job, someone looks at your resume and says, gee, we'd like to hire you, but we wish you had more experience. You know, it's how do I get experience without having a job? Right. Well, it's the same thing in credit. That oftentimes uh, there, there, there are millions. In fact, it's estimated that there are as many as 70 million people living in America who are automatically rejected by lenders when they apply for credit because they don't have enough information in their credit file. I mean, they, they don't have a sufficient credit history. So we want to, we, you know, we're really setting out to thicken their files by including predictive data and helping them access credit so they can build assets and create wealth. And that's that. Yeah, you know, really is our, our core program right now and has been for about the past five years. But, you know, we're really all about what we call information solutions to development challenges. And we, you know, we promote the responsible use of information uh, for socially optimal outcomes. And, you know, another major silo is what we call our economic development metrics. And here we help uh, charities and nonprofits primarily that focus on economic development optimize their performance using information. And so another example of this would be the United Way came to us, and they've got uh, financial stability programs across the country. And they wanted to measure the impact they were having on communities, and they wanted to know which programs were working and which weren't, so they could better allocate scarce program dollars across competing programs. So we designed a program for them whereby we would actually be able to, with consent, pull credit file data and effectively see which people who came in through their programs, whether it was earned income tax credit or credit counseling or financial literacy training or first-time home mortgage courses, and see which programs had the, the, you know, an enduring effect or a positive effect in terms of reducing delinquencies, charge-offs, bankruptcies, that sort of thing, and, and, and maybe combinations of programs. So we've been, we've been working hand-in-glove with organizations like the United Way uh, um, and others to develop metrics. Uh, you know, another example of that is we're currently doing work down on the Gulf Coast. And you know, we were on the ground in 06, immediately after uh, Hurricanes Katrina, Rita, and Wilma. And we've been working with massive data sets to try and help understand the impacts of those hurricanes on individuals and communities and small businesses. And enduring, you know, really over the last three and a half years, we've been doing ongoing research in terms of the efficacy of SME grants from the Louisiana Disaster Recovery Foundation on small businesses in the affected areas. And here again, the goal is to see you know, what impact, if any, have those grants had, what is the scale and magnitude of unmet needs for the, those small businesses that haven't received any help, and what programs that exist might be able to help them, and how much should they be funded. So this type of research could really help not only the, the, the agencies that are you know, in the trenches making a difference with the, you know, the affected communities and populations, but could also help build a case for federal dollars uh, um, to meet unmet needs. So that's the type of work that, that we're focused on. Yeah, you know, when I hear about this, I think about when you were talking about United Way, for example, when you show how you're helping to reduce bankruptcies, et cetera, I would think that that would help not only for federal monies, but maybe even for corporate monies and for just ordinary donors, you, when you show these kind of studies to say, look, when you contribute to this, this is what it does to our economy. This is what it does to help people. And you have real empirical data to show that. Absolutely. In fact, you know, in the wake of Katrina and in the wake of the documented uh, um, unfortunate cases around 911, where uh, 
monies that were given to charities were, were misused or misappropriated, there's been an increased demand for transparency and accountability, and that's, that's absolutely one thing that, that, what, you know, that our work, we believe, will lead to. It, it, it empowers organizations with an ability to show effectively an ROI, a return on investment for their funders. And uh, you know, we believe and have seen, in fact, that this results in an increased ability to show the impact of the contributions and, and to help with you know, future fundraising on those programs. Michael, it's so interesting. I, I mean, how do you actually show that direct correlation? I mean, I don't want any trade secrets or anything, but I'm just wondering, how do you actually show the direct correlation of, of the real impact that it's making? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, it, it, it was a bit of a puzzle. when the United, For example, when the United Way first came to us, their aspiration was to show the impact on a national level of the, of, you know, the impact that their programs were having. And uh, this, you know, they, they approached me and gave me this challenge, and it put me in the unfortunate position of having to go to the United Way America and tell them that it's impossible, it's quixotic, that, you know, there are just too few touch points. You know, in a country of 300 million, yeah. when you're talking about, you know, 1,300 locals and maybe you have uh, 1,000 people in each local that you interface with in a given year for financial stability, it, you're just not going to pick it up on something like GDP. So the only way you can really effectively measure this is micro to macro, is, is you know, working on the level of the individual and um, looking at the, their, their data and they share a lot of data. When an individual comes into a United Way or, let's say, uh, another group we worked with locally was the Durham Affordable Housing Coalition, they, 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 re- they fill in applications with lots of information that are required by you know, the county government, the federal government, the state government, to pay these institutions, right? Right. And, uh, and so with consent from that individual, uh, then you can basically use that information and layer on other types of data, again, you know, all affirmative consent, and, uh, and, 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 and basically do real-time tests. You know, follow the, the, you know, that person over time sort of by, by way of their data and see whether attending certain combinations of programs or you know, going for financial literacy training and um, getting an IDA helps them with financial stability. And uh, the way we see that is we see, well, okay, uh, we can compare to peer, peer groups or benchmark. We can say comparably situated individuals in this county or in the state or in the region or nationally, here's how they perform, and then we benchmark the performance of people in these programs against them. And so those differences we can basically attribute in part, you know, maybe, maybe not entirely, but in part and significantly to involvement in those programs. Wow, that is fantastic. And I think nowadays, especially after we've heard of ACORN and you know, all of the scandals that have been on all the TV shows were saying, hey, you know, show us that you're really accountable. And I think what you're doing with these studies is really proving the accountability or proving that there is no accountability, that they're not doing, you know, what programs really aren't working and why aren't they working? Sounds great. Well, and, you know, and I'll say, Maury, and, I, and I, the whole acorn episode aside, that was unfortunate. And, and what gets spoken about far less is the fact that the, 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 you know, the, the individuals who went in to set up ACORN were, were thrown out you know, nine times out of ten. But you know, the people that we're working with are definitely you know, right-minded and are, are really genuinely interested in, in helping uh, disadvantaged communities. And, uh, and they, too, struggle with how to measure impacts. And this has been a challenge for a long time. And you know, I, I think it's one of these rare moments where we finally have you know, data and technology aligned where we can actually use this data, harness the power of this information for a socially optimal outcome. And so I think you're going to see a sea change in accountability, a sea change in approach in measuring performance. You know, it starts, it starts with a ripple. You know, it's, it's sort of a, the proverbial you know, butterfly flapping its wings in China and so forth. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm real encouraged by the, the interest that these organizations have shown in this approach and their willingness to really, you know, get their... their, their, their their feet wet or their, their toes in the water to, uh, to participate. I, I think it's fabulous. You know, I'm a fellow with the Poneman Institute, and he does some really wonderful studies with corporations and looks at consumer issues and also looks at what's really happening in, with uh, data protection. And I think these studies are, are so helpful. And how, as many times as corporations, you know, utilize data for marketing, now you're us- using that data 
to find out social, you know, socially responsible programs and how, how really responsible they are. So I, I, it's very impressive to me, at least, that you're doing something that's using the data. I mean, it's out there. It's out there. At least let's use it for good. Talking well, about right. it. And I'll say that's, uh, it's one of the blessings we've had as an institution is that we've been able to be a trusted third party to different types of organizations, you know, groups and, and of organizations that normally wouldn't cooperate or collaborate. Uh, and, uh, you know, in our capacity as a sort of a centrist educational institution, you know, we've, we've been able to convince corporations to share proprietary and sensitive data and scoring models. Uh, and we've been able to work, you know, at the same time with advocacy groups uh, um, exploring the same types of issues. So, uh, it, you know, it's, it's been terrific. And I will say that this is one of the things that we think sets Perk apart from sort of your, your grandfather's think tank. And I know it's now very fashionable in, in Washington to say you're a think and do tank, but you know we really we really are. We we define that we were sort of country before country was cool. You know we don't care about attribution. We don't care about sound bites and, and cable news. And, and and you know that's much to our detriment because it makes fundraising more difficult. But we really care about outcomes. And if that means you know we have to go into a market and intervene and create a solution, uh, we will and we do and we are. That's terrific. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Turner, who who serves as president and senior scholar of the Political and Economic Research Council, which we call PERC, and he founded this himself, and he's an expert on credit access, credit reporting, and credit scoring, and much, much more. And I should also tell you, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. So, Michael, why don't you tell us about the Alternative Data Initiative? What, what the heck is that? Sure, Mari. This is, this is really something that came out of the, uh, the, the FACT Act, the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act, which is his typical Washington four-letter acronyms. Uh, um, this was an amendment to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and this is really the, the, the crucial set of rules that basically define you know, consumer rights, uh, data furniture, and credit bureau rights and obligations regarding credit reporting and credit scoring, and basically how this information is collected, stored, used, and uh, who, who can access it under what conditions, and how it's going to impact, you know, tens of millions of people every day when they apply for credit or insurance or a job or an apartment even. And uh, what we found actually was that when Congress, Congress said basically, we're not going to legislate right now. We'd like the, the Federal Trade Commission to look at this issue, look at whether there's data out there that currently isn't in credit reports, but that if it were put in credit reports, could actually help financially excluded people access affordable sources of mainstream credit. And the FTC basically did a, a stakeholder survey, which was a good start, and they said basically, well, there's data out there, but the market will take care of it. We found that somewhat unsatisfying. So we continued basically and extended that analysis. Um, we went to the big three credit bureaus and said, hey, um, this data, you know, this alternative, this non-financial payment data seems promising. Why don't you all collect it? And we were told, well, it's not a business priority because our big clients aren't demanding it. Hmm. And we went to their big clients, the you know, major lenders, big, big banks, big non-bank lenders and so forth, and said, hey, uh, why aren't you using this data for underwriting? I mean, the, the, the retail credit market in the, this country is mature. You know, the final frontier are the 54 million uh, unbanked. Um, this seems like it would be a great way to help you, you know, break into that market. And they said, well, we're not using that for underwriting because the bureaus aren't collecting it. <laughs> so so they're pointing at each other, right? That's, that's right. That's absolutely right. And, and you know, it was a really a chicken v egg dynamic. <laughs> So you know, we got together with the Brookings Institution and, and brought all of these parties together and for, for a big sort of kumbaya session. And what came out of that was an, a, a decision to analyze the predictive value, to quantify it again. And we were able to get um, a huge data set. One of the three bureaus, TransUnion, for some years had quietly been collecting fully reported energy utility and, and telecoms trade lines. And they had about a little over 8 million people who had uh, at least one or more 
of these these payment these payment histories recorded in their credit file for a year or more. Hmm. And uh, and so we were able to get the entire universe of people in the United States who had this data reported. And then we had a control you know sample of about four or five million folks who didn't have one of those trade lines, but a representative sample. And then we got models. We got generic scoring models and uh, card models and mortgage models, actual commercial models that are used by lenders. And we basically set up a series of models, and, and we, want, we wanted to see you know, what impact including or excluding this data had on credit access. Well, you would think, especially young people, young marrieds who don't have a lot of credit, who didn't have a mortgage, they're not going to have that much in there, but they probably have an apartment and they've been paying utilities for years. That's exactly right. You know, that was it, 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 one of the first hypotheses we speculated was that the credit and experience, younger Americans who, when they, when they get a job out of, out of school, let's say, and they want to buy a professional wardrobe and they go to get a store card and they're rejected because they don't have a credit history, right. but I'll bet they've been renting an apartment and paying an electricity bill or a gas bill or a Even water in bill college. or yeah. oil, heating oil or phone, and certainly mobile phones, right? Yeah, they've been Everybody renting for a long time. Yeah. And, uh, and, but, you know, that data, that data right now is largely only reported in negatively. Basically, if you're late, if you're in default or charge-off, that's what makes it into your credit report. Well, it usually doesn't, yeah. timely payments, that's not reported at all. Yeah, Michael, because it probably doesn't get reported until it gets sold to collections, and then the collection company reports it. Well, that, that's, that, that's, that's partially true. In most cases, for utility companies, uh, they go through collections agencies, but many, you'd be surprised, and we did, a, we did research on this, yeah. many companies actually report negative payments directly to credit bureaus. But they, won't re- but they don't report the positive payments. They don't report the positive payment. And, and you know, it, what's really shocking is that one, one company, Verizon, uh, reported uh, just, two, just two years ago, they decided we're going we're gonna to start reporting fully. And they began with a pilot program in Virginia and reported, you know, a few hundred thousand. And were so impressed with the results and the consumer feedback, within three months they ramped it up to 20 million landline accounts. Hmm. But then, in less than a year, they discontinued reporting positive payment data because they felt it was in violation, potentially, of federal law. That uh, you know, the Telecommunications Act of 1996, there's a privacy section, Section 222, and there's an FCRA carve-out that permits you know, sharing what's called CPNI, Customer Proprietary Network Information. But at the time, the in-house counsel interpreted that the prevailing practice was only reporting negative data. So they felt that by reporting positive data, they may be in violation of federal law, but it was okay to report negative data. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a privacy de- violation, too, to report the negative data if they can't report the positive data? That's hysterical. It, 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 it's really <laughs> incredible. I mean, it's truly incredible. You know, I've, I've, I've told this story to so many folks up on Capitol Hill, and I, I couldn't find a single person who gave me a straight face and said, this, yeah, that's actually what Congress meant. You know, we, we wanted to hurt people. We didn't want to help them. And yeah. it, it, it's just, it's absolutely, but, you know, look, I, I understand that corporate counsel are necessarily very conservative, and there's strict, literal interpretations of the law, and, you know, it, it, it just, you know, so this, is, this actually is why we need clarification. We, yeah, we, we need, need, we, need, we, need... we need to get a law that, that clears all this up so companies can do the right thing, especially companies that want to do the right thing. Well, let me ask you something else. When we're talking about this alternative data, um, you know, for, for people like victims of identity theft, if they don't see that their imposter has gotten utilities or, you know, um, and, and they wouldn't see it on their credit report, it's going to be a problem for them if they don't know that it's there because they're not going to see it till it does become a negative uh a negative reporting or when it gets into collections. My, my experience is most victims call me when they find out that there is collection accounts, okay, that they didn't know about that had utilities in there. So this is really, you know, I think the hot button for Congress is identity theft victims because they're totally innocent. They haven't not made a payment. They haven't had this negative history that's really theirs. They're the innocent bystander. And I think that's what is going to drive this when we have victims who say, wait a minute, I didn't even know about these utility statements or these utility bills. I didn't ever live in Virginia. I live in California or New York. 
So that's a that's a huge issue. Is that working at all? You know, I'll tell you, Mari, uh, and I'll, I'll confess that my research for you know really for the past five years on this topic has been uh, you know now I, I'm, I'm having my eyes opened has been very myopic and focusing on you know uh, asset building, wealth creation, credit access, reducing financial exclusion. It was really when you and I spoke some weeks back about about this and its relation to identity theft that my eyes were it makes perfect sense. It absolutely makes sense, and, and you're, you're right. Even those companies that directly report to credit bureaus report when it's very, very delinquent. We're talking above 150 or above 180. And in, you know, by that time, you're right. It's going to be too late. And, and certainly you know the patterns of identity thieves far better than I, but you're right. Many, many identity thieves steal someone's identity and open up. They, you know, they rent an apartment, and they have to get utility service, telephones, wireline, wireless, cable, the whole kit and caboodle, and no one has any way of finding out about that until it goes into collection. And it's, it's, it's very difficult and very painful at that point. Let me ask you another thing. Are these utility companies not reporting, is it because, is one of the reasons because it's a hassle and they don't want to bother with it for positive reporting, only for negative? I mean, is it, what is it? Is it a hassle? Is it an expense? Is it time-consuming? Do you need more people? What what is the real challenge in reporting? Yeah, you know, Molly, and this is what this is what gets me. Um, you know, we've shown how reporting this data fully can increase access to affordable credit by over twenty two percent for the Hispanic and uh, African American population in this country. And I would by think over the Asian too. For Asians, and yeah. One one you know you pointed out younger Americans, but one of the groups we didn't know really benefited from this was the, the elderly population, the above 66. I was, was just going to say that. that. 14% of people above 66 have no credit file or are unscorable. You know what? A lot of elderly people, and I've noticed this, and I tell them not to do it, but they do. A lot of elderly people pay off their mortgage, number one, because mm-hmm. they don't want to do it. They don't want to have credit cards. They don't want to have any credit out there because they don't want to be bothered with it. They're, they're getting very conservative, and they just want to protect themselves. They don't realize by paying off their mortgage that they're more subject to identity theft, by the way. I tell them to at least get a credit, a credit line, that even if they don't use it, just to have something to prevent these fraudsters from going in and steal their mortgage out from under them. And yeah, they they stop using credit when they're elderly, and well, and, and that's and, a know, good reason why they wouldn't have as high a credit score. Yeah, in addition to this, we see that with the increasing frequency of late stage divorce, or the widow widower effect. Yes. Basically, I mean, you know, uh, my parents' generation, for example, my mom didn't work. You know, she she didn't really, and and many moms were stay at home moms. Right. right? That was and the generation. The credit history was in the you know the head of household, typically the male's credit file. Right. And you, know, you could be 66, 67, a widow, and now you need to take out a home maintenance loan because your home's falling apart, and you want to protect that asset. And you apply for a you know fifteen, twenty thousand dollar loan to fix the shingles or the siding, and suddenly you're rejected. No one will give you credit because you have zero credit history. Exactly. It doesn't matter what your income, what you've got, you know, what you've put away. Nothing. It's that you're a credit invisible, and and that's a big issue. And that's an issue for immigrants. You know, legal immigrants who come here, like my wife, who's a physician, and came from Sri Lanka, and she had you know, 15 years of credit history with HSBC in the UK, in the Caribbean, and she couldn't get a store card at Dillard's because she's a credit invisible. Oh my goodness. So you know, there's there's either lots of different types of folks that you wouldn't think of who would have problems getting credit or renting an apartment. Or, or uh, you know, getting insurance at affordable rates that are really affected by this. And and and, and you know, to answer your question, uh, um, utility companies looked at this question in the early '90s, and the technology then wasn't what it is today. And it, it was you know, we were talking about magnetic tapes and paper files and a very cumbersome, labor-intensive process that was costly, and and the data accuracy wasn't as good then as it is today. And so, uh, you know, they expected a lot of consumer disputes, and they would have to maintain a huge customer relations staff. So they, they really decided against it. Well, a lot of those, the same people who were in management then, I mean, utility companies 
aren't typically the most dynamic companies on earth. Right. And so you've got staid traditional management, and they just they just haven't adjusted with the times. Uh, and so, and then on top of which, basically, there are some interests out there who are propagating the the I would say um, misinformation that complying with the data furniture obligations of the FCRA are are expensive and costly. And so, if you begin reporting fully, you're going to assume a lot of cost, and you won't see any upside. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know that that it, it's sad, it's unfortunate, and it's it's simply not true. And again, the research we've done shows just the contrary. Shows that real costs of fully reporting are a fraction of the perceived costs. But and they have the to see benefits of yeah. fully reporting greatly outweigh the perceived benefits. And when you compare the cost to the benefits, some companies that fully report to credit bureaus, customer payment data. We're looking at benefits exceeding costs by the last category we had was a multiple above 15, and, and many checked above 15 times. So that suggests that there's a huge upside. And what we found really interestingly is that even in, in deregulated markets, it's a customer loyalty thing. People get it. If you communicate to consumers the value proposition, they respond to it. If you don't step forward with a stick and say, we're punishing you if you don't pay, if you say, hey, you know what? We're going to reward you for your good payment, for your timely payments. And this could save you thousands of dollars on a home mortgage loan or an auto loan or help you get better credit terms or more credit. Then people really respond to that, and they stick with it. They stick with that company. So there's a big upside for those pioneering companies that have the vision and the visionary leadership to to break away from the herd and fully report to, to credit bureaus. You know, Michael, not only is it value added, but think about this. If you're, uh, and I'm just thinking about young people who, especially in this economy and, and anybody who's laid off or something, when they decide what they're going to pay, all right, what bills they're going to pay, they're going to pay the bills that are reported to the credit bureaus first, because that's going to be the thing that's going to affect their reputation and their credit score. So in a way, these utility companies are hurting themselves because they may say, well, okay, I'm not going to pay. Of course, if you don't pay your utilities, they'll turn off your water. But, but, but in effect, in a way, they're, they're kind of hurting themselves in that way because the people are going to pay what, what's reported first. That, Sorry, that is absolutely correct. And in fact, we did a survey of 1,000 heads of household as part of our uh, study that we released this year, credit reporting customer payment data. And what we saw was that about half the people we interviewed said, well, you know, you report, you don't report, it's not going to change my payment behavior one bit. And, and, and you know, that was expected because basically most people, more than, more than 9 out of 10, pay their utility bills regularly or, or, or almost on time, all the time, all the time, right? Right, right. But the other half, 35% said that if, the, if they, they knew that their utility company was fully reporting, that they would be much more likely to pay on time. And another 15% said they'd be more likely to pay on time. So that means half of your customer base is, is going to respond to this. And that's, that's from a cash flow perspective. That's huge. Exactly. And we've seen that. We've seen and you don't have that, to send out those letters like we're going to turn off your water or we're going to turn off your electricity or you have to make all these threats, you know? Exactly. And then you don't have to have a big customer service line that, that people get screamed at. What do you mean you're going to turn off my water? I have right. a baby, you know? You know, it goes back to that, you know, those old children's stories where, you know, if you want to get someone to take off their coat, do you, do you blow it off with a cold wind or do you, you know, have the sunshine come up and they, they take it off because it's warm and they're comfortable? Well, that's the whole point is everybody is like, what's in it for me? So the utility companies really need to see what's in it for them because that's the way they think. You know, is it is there something really valuable in it for me? And if they can see these studies and say, gee, people are going to pay more, you know, almost have to list. These are the reasons to do this because they're going to pay more. They're going to like you more. You're going to have less customer service problems, et cetera, et cetera. Just, you know, and for me, thinking of all those poor victims of identity theft, I would be thrilled if they didn't have to, you know, try and look around and find out what, you know, it's so insidious I've had so many victims who've called me and they said, you know, I just found out there was an apartment in another state where my, and my imposter was, had phones and all sorts of stuff, you know, utilities and was just, you know, there's, there's an eviction notice against me. I never even lived in that state. I had no idea any of this stuff was going on. And, and 
for me, hearing victims say this is just heartbreaking. And they say, well, where could I find out this earlier? And that was a problem. I just didn't know. Well, I'll tell you, Mari, you know, we've, we've tested the energy utility and telecoms data. One of the data sets we're working like the Dickens right now to get access to and test is rental payment data. And, you know, when we did our early report on alternative data, we thought that rental wasn't a promising data set because it's fragmented. I mean, you think your modal landlord is someone renting an apartment above their garage, you know, versus a utility industry where you've got, you know, like telecoms, wireline telecoms, there's maybe, what, three, four phone companies anymore? Right. And uh, what we found out is that there are property management companies. There are some major ones that have, you know, literally millions of apartments in their system. And there's, there's about a half a dozen common platforms for this data. And, you know, there, there are two companies right now. One is this company called Rent Bureau in Atlanta. And another one's uh, TransUnion with their TransUnion rental screening service that actually have a technology to put a script on the back end of those databases and pull that data in a Metro 2 format. And, uh, and have it included in credit files. And, uh, and they're looking at potentially 40% of the rental market, uh, of which about 50% are hot affordable housing eligible. So it's not just wealthy people with high-end condos in Florida and California and Arizona. We're talking about a, you know, a real representative sample of the country. And you know what I found? Uh, I was working on a case as an expert, and I found out that there are all of these, uh, like you said, these these rental databases that show people who haven't paid the rent. Do you know what I mean? And these various uh, landlords go there to see, well, gee, I don't want to rent to you, right? That's right. And, and so those databases exist even for the for a person who is maybe going to rent out their house, they're going to look at those databases to see if the person is on that list. So again, it's one of those negative things instead of those positive things that you're talking about. Well, and, and you know, and we're, when we're working with these companies to access fully reported data, we're not interested in negative. I'll, let me tell you, I have a very strong aversion to negative-only databases. I have a strong aversion to reporting only negative data, and the reason is simple. It's an unforgiving system. If that gets into your credit file, it follows you around for 7 to 10 years. And if you don't have positive data to offset that, you're going to suffer for a long time. Now, let's, just, let's, let's talk about utility data, for example. You know, let's say that you lose your job and you're, you're making your payments now late uh, uh, for, for some utility bills, right? Well, then your circumstances change. Six months, a year later, you get a job. Maybe it's a better job. Maybe you're earning more than before. Now you're fulfilling those obligations, and you're paying on time, all the time, all those bills. If that's not captured, and a creditor or a tenant, uh, I mean a landlord or a potential employer sees that, all they're going to see are those stains, those blemishes, and you're going to suffer again. And it's going to make it much harder to pull yourself out of a difficult situation. But if you've got that positive data being pumped into the pipeline, it's a much more forgiving system. It allows you to get back on your feet and rebuild your credit history faster and, and, and better than, than any other system I'm aware of. Right, and it shows a more true history, too. That's absolutely right. And, and you know, it's, it's a great thing, this rental data, because, if, you know, it, it, the whole identity theft uh, link that was, you highlighted with respect to utilities and telcos applies to rental data as well. Exactly. I mean, if you start getting more of these data sets where you know their patterns of identity theft and you know their behavior, the, the more robust those data sets are, the more powerful that is as a tool for prevention and protection. And then again, it leads to the issue of having consumers and victims have access to those databases. But I want to introduce you again. We, If you're driving by, we are speaking with a wonderful, as you can hear, a very wonderful and articulate um, Dr. Michael Turner, who serves as president and senior scholar of the Political and Economic Research Council, and he is a prominent expert on credit access, credit reporting, credit scoring, information policy, information privacy, economic development, and so much more. And he's testified in Congress. And speaking of Congress, Michael, I, I understand you're pushing for some legislation and some solutions. Why don't we talk about that now? Because that's a big issue. You know, Mario, when we, uh, when we first began looking at this issue, we partnered with uh, NARUC, the National Association of Regulated Utility Commissions. That's a mouthful. But what that is is it's basically the trade association for all the state public service commissions and public utility commissions, the state regulators, utility telecom regulators. And, uh, you know, utilities and, and telcos, are, we've got a federal regulatory system. There's both national regulatory regulators and then state regulators. And 
We wanted to know, basically, are there state laws or regulations that prohibit the sharing of this data for inclusion in, in credit files? And so we did a survey, and we found, basically, that there were partial prohibitions in four states, including California, by the way. Uh, and, and they weren't with uh, credit reporting or credit scoring in mind at all. They were basically add-ons to privacy bills. So in California's case, it relates to telecoms data, and it was, a, it was an enhancement to the same section I talked about earlier, Section 222 of the Telecoms Act. And it basically prohibited sharing CP&I, the customer, customer proprietary network information, with anybody, right? Mm-hmm. So um, now, of course, uh, you know, the practice at the time wasn't using this for credit reporting, so there was no reason to even think about that um, back, you know, 13 years ago. Um, we found more significant than those four partial prohibitions in the states, however, was, was what we call regulatory uncertainty. In talking to regulators and talking to utility companies, we found utility companies who would go to the regulator and say, gee, we'd like to fully report to a credit bureau. And they were either told outright no, despite the absence of a statutory or regulatory prohibition, or the regulator said, more frequently said, okay, go ahead. And the utility company would say, well, we would like that in writing because obviously we're subject to a lot of scrutiny. Right. And the regulator said, no, 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 we're not going to give that to you in writing without direction from the state house. Well, suddenly, you know, you're in a position where any utility company that, that wants to share uh, and doesn't want, uh, you know, potential sanction from a regulator or some, some lawsuit later on, you know, alleging a violation of state law, has to have a bill passed in 50 states. And, uh, and you know, again, we don't, we don't think that's what the law says. We don't think that's what the Fair Credit Reporting Act is about. We don't think that's what the Telecoms Act is about. We think that the will of Congress, the intent of Congress was that this data can be shared responsibly, not just negative data, but full data, if it's in the interest of the consumer. And we've established empirically with Brookings and, you know, in all of our analysis, we've established these incredible benefits, social and economic benefits. And we did socio-demographic analysis. We documented for younger Americans, older Americans, lower-income Americans, members of minority groups. We see these incredible benefits that can come from this data sharing. We believe that's what the will of Congress was, and we want Congress to say so. So all we've done is we've, we've asked for, and we've had uh, um, different representatives draft language. It's very simple, one-page language that just says, those utility companies and telcos that are interested in fully reporting to consumer reporting agencies, uh, the, the FCRA term for, for credit bureaus, uh, um, may do so if they choose. It, it doesn't mandate it. It just permits them. And, and, you know, nothing more than the cost of the ink and a pen, Congress can enable this, this, this tool that will, we believe, help, you know, a significant portion of, the, of that up to 70 million Americans who are financially excluded quickly build a good credit history and be able to move away from payday lenders and check cashing services and pawn shops and predatory lenders and be able to access affordable sources of mainstream credit now and build assets and be able to buy a home without an arm and a, and a, and a con and be able to, to get a job or car to get to work and be able to buy that professional wardrobe or take out a personal loan. That's what we're all about. So, Michael, who's opposing this? Well, you know, it's interesting. We've got a split in the advocacy community. Um, you know, speaking of ACORN, ACORN has signed on to our sign-on letter, and I would encourage, by the way, you know, you or any of your listeners who are interested in lending your names or your organization's names to our sign-on letter to go to our website, uh, www.perc.net. And right on the homepage, there's a, a, a link, a hyperlink. You can click on and you can add your name to our list. But ACORN is, is, is on board. We've got the National Association of Consumer Advocates. We've got the Corporation for Enterprise Development. We've got, I mean, we've got over 55 organizations right now, very diverse, that are supporting this. But and what, have, what is uh, the epi- um, but, but Michael, what is right now, uh, only that I'm aware of, uh, that's decided to oppose this, and that's uh, the National Consumer Law Center. And what's really interesting is that this was totally off the radar screen. Uh, I had testified with Margo Saunders on this uh, four or five years ago, and uh, at the time, Margo was saying, well, I don't think utility data is predictive. And I said, well, Margo, that's an empirical question. What's the basis of your statement? She said, I just, I, I don't feel it's predictive. <laughs> well, okay. And, you know, well, since then, we did all this. We did research with Brookings. We did right. research independently. We worked with all these banks and bureaus. And, you know, we, we, 
we not only, I mean, after we did our, our, our joint study with Brookings, and there was a huge response to this, including, you know, I was invited to spend uh, 90 minutes with uh, Chair, Chairman Sheila Baer at the, at the FDIC. She's a big supporter of this, by the way. Um, we listened. We went around and met with consumer advocates and privacy advocates and regulators and policymakers and said, here's what we found. What do you think? Tell us what you, you know. And they said, well, you know, we're concerned this is about easy credit. We think that, you know, there was very, very paternalistic attitudes that, mm. you know, these people, the, the unbanked, they really don't deserve credit. They can't mm. handle it. I even had one senior congressional staffer tell me that, well, you know, I got a credit card for my Puerto Rican maid, and she maxed it out and, you know, <laughs> defaulted. So, you know, they, this group can't, they can't handle credit. Oh, my I mean, goodness. You wouldn't believe yeah. what people were saying. And... You need we to said, you, you, know you need to we're put your own this. face. We're yeah, show this. we can yeah. show you what happens to people who are new to credit through alternative data. Right, and we did, and we showed we found that people who, on the basis of the, this information, were able to get mainstream credit. After one year, they were performing better than the national average, and after three years, much better. They had less debt. They had a high. And they, they actually, however you broke it up, whether it was by ethnicity, by age. By income tier, their scores improved consistently over those th- the three years that we looked at. Well, you know, so if Michael, this were easy credit. Yeah. If they were unresponsible. If this were about overextension, you would expect their scores to trend downward because there'd be delinquencies and bankruptcies. Right. But just the opposite is true. Michael, how about putting those people, if they're willing to do that, those people who can show what happened to them? This is what happened to me before. I noticed that when I've testified in Congress and I've brought victims to Congress. They seem to, when you put a face on it, then all of a sudden everybody gets it. When, you know, when you talk about empirical data, it's one thing. But when you bring, you know, Sally Jones in and Sally Jones tells her story, that is entirely different. And I don't know if you've done that yet, but that surely seems to be much more empowering and the media picks it up, and then, of course, when the legislature hears those stories, then they, they, go, they get it. They get it. I don't you know, know if you've done you know, that. You're absolutely correct, and I agree with you 100%. The problem is, though, that in order for me to be able to do the type of research that I do, I have to comply with all sorts of federal and state laws that mean that I can only deal in depersonalized data. So I, I have no idea who the new to credit through alternative data are. I have no way of backing into that. I have no way of reaching out to them. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would love that. I would love to find people who, you know, on the basis of their uh, phone and, and, and gas or electric bill, were able to get, uh, you know, an auto loan or a credit card and, you know, build assets. I would love to have them. But, you know, and, and there are a lot of people. And, you know, again, we, we looked at the thin file. That, you know, our focus is on the underbanked. And, you know, the, in, 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 the, in the industry vernacular, sure. that's the thin file, no file, the people who are unscorable. Using this data, they were able to access credit at four times the rate that the, the thin file, no file population without this data was. Yeah, Michael, you're going to have to put in some of those, you know, studies. If you would like to come forward and maybe speak to Congress or the media, mark this box <laughs> and call us. You know, I mean, you might have to just do reverse. You call us and we'll be happy to share your story if you are willing to do that. I mean, you're going to have to do that because that's the only way they're really going to get it because a study is just not going to make it. I mean, it helps me to understand it. I get it. I talk to victims all the time. I talk to people all the time, but I really think Congress needs to do that. But I want to go further because we only have about 10 more minutes and I want to make sure that we talk about this Equifax's new National Consumer Telecommunication and Utility Exchange, the NCTUE, that you and I talked about before, because most people don't have a clue about this, and I I think this is a a, a huge story that we have to scoop out there and tell about now. So can we switch gears and and talk about that? Absolutely, Maury. All right, so tell us what you know about that. I know Privacy Times revealed it, you and I. That's how you and I ended up getting together and talking about it. So let's uh, begin by recapping the basic facts around S- S- um, the NCTUE, as you understand them. Sure. And, you know, and, and uh, this database has been around for a while. Um, I came to be aware of it just through the work we're doing on, al- on alternative data, on this, you know, the same energy utility and telco payment data. And uh, what I came to discover was that uh, Equifax has a database that um, I've heard has about 80% of 
all energy utility and telecoms accounts reported into it. But it's, uh, it's, it's a negative-only database. And unlike the, the, the data that gets into your FCRA credit file that you have access to, uh, that you, know, you can check on regularly, um, and, and, and which only has seriously delinquent data in most cases. Again, there are some companies that are fully reporting those pioneering companies, but they're, they're a minority. NCTUE gets reports in 30-day intervals. Every pay, every pay period, you know, every time you get a bill, the company, if you're, if you're delinquent, that data goes into NCTUE. And it's used by utility companies and telcos only, basically for um, when you move, when you rent, a, you, know, you rent a new apartment or buy a new home or uh, change locations at all and you apply for utility service, they'll ask you for your Social Security number. And they'll pull your credit file, but additionally, they'll dip into, if they're an NCTUE member, they'll dip into the, uh, the, the, the Equifax NCTUE database and see if you've ever had delinquencies on utilities or telcos in the past. And so I think, and you know, that is so critical because we just talked about the fact that people think, well, I'm not going to pay, if, things are, if times are tough, I won't pay my utility bills and I'll pay everything else because that's what goes on my credit report. So it's so insidious. They have no idea that they're being judged by this other database that has negative information that they don't know about and they haven't seen the negative information. And indeed, it may even be correct, incorrect, or it may even be identity theft and they don't have access to it. That's right. And, and you know, the, um, it's an open question right now whether um, the NCTUE is and should be an FCRA-regulated database. But, um, you know, I mean, I think if you look at the FACT Act, and, and you know, the, the FACT Act amended the Fair Credit Reporting Act in 2004, you know, passed in 03, implemented in 04, and they changed the definition of credit to a broad definition of credit to comply with the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And that includes all kinds of things that you wouldn't normally think of as credit, including, by the way, energy utility payment data and telephone payment data. And people need to know, I need to stop you for a second, Michael, because people need to understand when you talked a minute ago about, you know, your rights under FACTA or the Fair Credit Reporting Act, people need to think about it. You have a right under the Fair Credit Reporting Act to look at these consumer databases and see what's on there. You have a, a right to dispute. You have a right to have things deleted that are fraudulent or incorrect. You have a right to, to dispute and have things corrected. And so that's what he's talking about, about having those rights. And the question is, is, is this database by Equifax, which I think it is, is it subject to that? So you do have that right to review it, to see it, to dispute it, to correct it. Well, Maury, I would add to that there's an obligation of uh, um, in the users of that data that make a credit decision right. based on that information. If, they, if, they, if there's an adverse action, if they say, we're going to deny you service, so think about a competitive deregulated electric environment or a wireless phone or a wireline phone where you know, you're denied service, they have uh, uh, an obligation to send you an adverse action notification that says, we denied you service and here are the things that we considered that resulted in that denial. Or if they require a security deposit, that's an adverse action. And there should be a notification that says, we considered these factors in, in you know, requiring a security deposit, and you may contact this entity. And you know, it's a data furnisher. In this case, it would be NCTUE if they used NCTUE data to deny you service or charge you a security deposit, you may contact NCTUE for a free disclosure. Exactly. And, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, this data is being used for denial of service. It is being used for requiring security deposits, and those activities are credit as defined by the ECOA and the FACT Act. And I'm completely unaware of any consumer ever receiving an adverse action notification or ever being able to access NCTUE. So I'm, I'm going to be following this debate with great interest, obviously because of the ramifications this has on our broad goal of having this data reported into FCRA-regulated database so consumers have the full consumer rights and consumer protections of the FCRA. Yeah, it'll be real interesting to see, but I think uh, there are so many of these specialty uh, consumer reporting agencies that most people aren't even aware of. You know, that 
that people have a right to get a free disclosure once a year and get to see that. And, you know, when I spoke with some people at Equifax, they were just saying, well, you know, the reason you don't have to see it is because it's not negative. It's only negative. It's not positive. And I said, well, how would people see the negative if they're a victim of identity theft? And they said, well, they'll see it when it goes to collections, which is what you and I talked about later, which earlier, which is, well, that it's a little bit too late <laughs> to see it when it finally goes to collections. That's right. And, and by the way, what about data errors? Yes. Uh, I've asked utility companies whether they, whether they believe that they were uh, subject to the FCRA by virtue of the fact that they, they reported to the NCTUE. They said no. They said they asked uh, Equifax and NCTUE. They were told no. And, uh, and I said, well, what about if there are errors in your database? I mean, I said, you don't certainly believe that you've got a perfect database. They said, well, no, of course we don't. That's, that's, that's folly. But we hope that those errors are corrected in the next billing cycle. You know, uh, you know Ed Merzwinski from the uh, Public Research, uh, Public Interest Research Group, and they I, I called him yesterday, as a matter of fact. Yeah, and they are very interested in this. And in fact, when they've done their studies just with credit reports, they found in one of their recent studies that seventy percent of credit reports had errors, and about thirty percent of it was enough to keep you getting from getting a job or getting a house or getting an apartment. So it's it's obvious that there's going to be errors and there should be a way for consumers to correct that which leads me to we don't have a lot of time but i just wondered there's all this conversation now about the consumer financial protection act and that new commission what are your thoughts on that well i'll tell you we've uh, we've basically sat on the sidelines we've given support to chairman franks and chairman dodd and are are, are generally supportive of the notion of you know, simplifying and streamlining regulation. Uh, um, but, you know, the devil's in the detail with this, with all things, Mari. Um, you know, if, if there's an issue that's sort of core to what we do, particularly around credit access and, and credit reporting, credit, we'll, we'll probably weigh in. But right now, um, I think it's a positive thing, and, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to catch flack and heat from some of my supporters uh, um, for saying that, but, you know, that's, that's what makes us intellectually honest and a centrist organization. Uh, um, we're hopeful. I mean, I hope it comes through, and I hope it comes through in a way that's, you know, valuable and meaningful to consumers. Because there, there, I mean, obviously there have been a lot of bad actors and a lot of irresponsible actors in the financial services sector, and uh, and and you know, clearly there's a, a need for a, a you know, empowered cop on the beat. Yeah, you know, my concern is, as much as I love the people at the Federal Trade Commission, their hands are tied in a lot of ways. You know, for example, I called them about American Express to say that American Express was violating the Fair Credit Reporting Act because it was refusing to provide uh, data to victims of identity theft when they provide a police report and their identity theft affidavit and all these things that they're supposed to do under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And, you know, they said, well, you know, Mari, you have to go to the controller of the currency. But the controller of the currency really is there to support the banks and not, you know, victims or consumers. So, you know, either we need some kind of commission that's really there for consumers or we need to do something to give the Federal Trade Commission some more help to deal with these other issues. I, I, I don't know what the answer is, but it's just not working the way it is. Well, I think this Congress is really committed to the issue, and I, you know, I know Chairman Franks has staked his personal reputation on this. So, there, there, you know, there, there, there are a lot of hard-working folks who are really trying to make this happen. It's just, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the process, the legislative process, it's all about compromise, and, and you know, the best intentions can, can generate a bill that comes out and, land, you know, it goes to committee or it goes to a, 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 a conference at the end of the day that just, you know, is, is a far cry from what its original intent was. So, I, you know, again, I'll withhold any judgment until we see uh, what comes out of the uh, yeah, what, what, what lands hopefully on the president's desk for signature. But, um, you know, even after that, Molly, there's a lot of work that can be done with uh, the implementing uh, institutions, the regulators, uh, you know, the laws written in very broad and sort of guidelines. And so, it, you know, this, this is something we're going to be debating for years. Well, I want to thank you for joining us. We are out of time. We have to have you back, and we're going to send everybody to your website. So have them go to www. P-E-R-C dot net. Yes, ma'am, and thank you so much. It's been a, a deep pleasure, and I'm, I'm a big fan and 
Look forward to to joining you again. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every week on Monday mornings from 8 to 9. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests. You can see their bios, pictures. You can listen to archived interviews, download podcasts, and write us emails about what's important to you in the information age. Thank you for joining us. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.